and my wife Doretha to come up here and please stand one on each side of me. Uh, before we begin, I just want to get a good look at you today. Because they say when you're speaking and preaching, you're supposed to connect with your audience. You guys are a good looking bunch. Well done. Some suntans out there. Okay, well, first thing I want to start with this is Rod, and this is my wife Doretha. And I want to start by letting you know something about me. I am a high jump champion. And I know you're looking at me and saying, with a bod like that, of course you have that long torso, long legs, really, you know, spindly spine. You have those long strides where you can leap and jump over. Let me stop and clarify a few things. Yes, I am a high jump champion. Grade seven, Sir John A. McDonald, middle school. Grade seven boys, high jump champ. And if I remember correctly, I cleared just over 140 centimeters, which is four foot seven inches. My wife is four foot 11. Just wanted to give you a little visual image and show you some beauty, okay? Above, uh, anything above that bar and the bar above that when I was jumping in grade seven, I could not get above that bar. I just couldn't do it. And that's something I found out really quickly. We went to the districts. I didn't get my first place ribbon in the districts. Now imagine if you were competing in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The men's gold medal height was two meters three, around six foot eight. This is my friend Rod. He is six foot six. No, that's six foot eight. No, just hang on. Keep your hand down. Okay. And the woman's height was 1.60 meters, five foot three. So about that much taller than Doretha. Now, that was considered an incredible standard at the time. But since then, the bar has been raised quite a bit. Just to qualify to compete in last 2006's, pardon me, 2016's Olympic high jump competition, in Rio, the women had to clear 1.94, which is just over 6.4, about there. Take Rod's head off. <laughs> and the men, just to qualify, 2.29, which is 7 foot 6. Can you show us that roughly, 7 6, Rod? Okay. Now, the world record currently for men is 2.45 meters, which is 8 feet and a quarter inch. Rod, you can reach basically that, right? And for the women, it's six foot nine. That's an incredibly high standard. In fact, the world record for men has not been touched since 1993 when it was set. No one has even cleared beyond 2.44, which is one centimeter below. In 2016 at the Olympics, the champion was a Canadian. I don't know if you remember that. Derek Drouin was his name. He only cleared 2.38. So, now, what I'm thinking I would do is I want to see if I can do it. So I'm going to get Rod. You stand right about here. Put your hands in the air. And I'm going to stand way over here. I know you can't see me in the dark. Doretha, you're going to catch me, right? <laughs> All right, you guys can sit down. Let's give him a hand. Thank you very much. Now just imagine, just imagine if the International Olympic Committee decided that they were tired of the poor performances of their athletes in the high jump at the Olympics. And they decided to raise the standard the standard for qualification for the Olympics is now, if you want to qualify for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, by the way, Wendy, are you going there? Yeah, of course, Japan, is now going to be 2 meters 50. No one would qualify. The standard would be too high. 
In our passage today, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, it seems to me what Jesus is doing here is he is setting the standard too high. If you want to look there, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. But before I do that, I want to go one verse back to verse 20. Here's the standard. For I tell you, in verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, these religious scribes and Pharisees were known for following the Ten Commandments and the other laws found in the Old Testament to the very letter. In fact, over the years, laws had been added and they had gotten those ones down too. It was like they were the Olympic record holders for righteousness. You want to know who's the best of the best at keeping God's commandments? Your scribes and your Pharisees. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, do what these guys do. But Jesus said, no, that standard has changed. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Kingdom of heaven is going to be a very empty place because none of us, whether you're here or whether you're listening on the radio later on when you listen to this, this podcast, none of us qualify. So what does Jesus do? He begins to explain, him, explain himself by giving a series of examples of how the standard has actually been changed. Maybe it's been raised. He's explaining it. He's come to fulfill the law. So he's trying to explain and help us understand. So what does he say? He gives a series of, you have heard it said, quotes, but then he says, but I say to you, statements. Because he wants to explain, as we've been calling our sermon series, he wants to explain the better way. So today we get the opportunity to look at the first one, the sixth commandment, which simply says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, that's a pretty easy one. I don't own a gun. I don't carry a knife. I've never even been in a fist fight before. And you can ask my son who we went paintballing with yesterday. I'm not good at that either. <laughs> but Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry, angry, with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So don't murder, but if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. Ooh, that's, that Jesus, hold on. Are you sure about that? I mean, I get angry. Everyone gets angry. Do you really expect your people to follow this better way? That's a little harsh, I think. Uh, well, let me just look at the bottom line, the fine print at the bottom of my Bible. Oh, good. Down at the bottom of my Bible, it makes more sense. It says here in the footnotes, some manuscripts insert the words angry without cause. Ah, much better. Because that makes way more sense to me. Of course, I shouldn't get mad or angry unless, of course, someone gives me a good reason to do that. Maybe I should read on. Okay. So Jesus then goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. What? Insults? You've got to be joking. Right? I mean, that's just some good old-fashioned fun, isn't it? What's wrong with a good zinger once in a while? But let's look at the fine print again. It literally says, says, raka to. Okay, in the fine print, it gives the word. So 
Now here I am. I'm going to give you a little lesson in some of the not-so-nice words in Greek and Aramaic, okay? Teaching you bad words in church. The word here used is raka. Say it with me. Come on now. Raka. Oh, come on now. Come on. Raka. Oh, you hurt my feelings. It almost sounds like you're spitting, doesn't it? What does it mean? It means, raka was a derogatory expression meaning empty-headed. It insinuates a person's stupidity or inferiority. Kind of like saying, you brainless blockhead. You empty-headed fool. You idiot. You imbecile. Should I go on? You used this colorful description called raka when you were angry and wanted to attack a person's self-worth and dignity. So that bar of righteousness is getting pretty high because if I think about my own life, I think I've done that. Come on, Jesus, go easy. I can't clear that. Let's take it up one more notch, Jesus says. And whoever says, really? You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Come on, Jesus. I can't live up to that. Do you know who the people that I drive around? I almost said work with, but I didn't. The word here is moros. Say it with me. Moros. Okay? Now, I'm probably saying it quite, not quite right, but you can look it up on Blue Letter Bible and they'll tell you to say it properly. But the idea here is think moron. Okay? If you refer to someone as, a, as moros, you were calling that person a stupid liar, a stupid cheater, or a stupid infidel. It was an insult on someone's morals as well as their character. Jesus, the bar's just too high. And then it says, if you say you fool to someone, it says you're in danger of, what is it? The fire of hell, Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Well, the valley south of Jerusalem was where some of the ancient Israelites and kings of Judah used to sacrifice their children to the Canaanite god Molech. Therefore, it was deemed to be a cursed place. Later in Israel's history, after Israel returned from 70 years of Babylonian exile, this area was known by some as the Valley of Slaughter. It was repurposed from a, from a place of infanticide to an ever-burning heap of rubbish. Gehenna became a place where corpses of animals, criminals, and all manners of refuge were to be thrown and destroyed. The Gehenna Valley was thus a place of sewage, burning, burning flesh, garbage, maggots, worms, crawling through the waste, and the smoke smelled strong and sickening. It was a place utterly filthy, disgusting, and repulsive to the nose and eyes. Gross! Just because I said you fool? What is Jesus saying? Are my words that serious? That's, that bar seems way too high. The standard of what Jesus is saying is, is simply this. Jesus is interested in more than our outward actions. To murder, yes, that is wrong. But go deeper. It's about our hearts and our attitudes. When Lyndon 
or any one of us, when we harbor thoughts of anger, bitterness, resentment towards someone, and or express those angry, bitter, resentful attitudes with our words, Jesus is saying like, it's like we've run them through with a sword or shot them with a gun. We've committed murder. I can't live up to that standard. Jesus, what are you talking about? Now, I want to pause here because this is getting heavy. I want to ask you to take your telephones out, all of you that have picture phones, and I want you to take a breath and I want you to take a picture of whoever's around you in a selfie form. And if you don't have your phone with you, that's okay, I've got you covered because I'm going to take a selfie with you. I'm doing this on purpose, by the way. It's not just to waste time. So take your phones out, huddle up, What are you waiting for? Come on. Okay, take your phone out. Take a selfie. Oh, yeah, that's what. Oh, I got to turn it the other way. Okay. You guys look pretty good. A little bit stunned, but that's okay. Okay. Now, I want you to take a look at your picture. Why are you laughing? You sent it to me. Okay, good. Here's why I asked you to do that. I want you to look at that picture. Have a good look at it. Every one of the people in that photo has been made by God. Yeah, that's right. Woohoo. That's good. Yeah, you can clap. That's fine. Even the person who only got half his face in the picture, okay? (laughs) According to the scriptures, according to the Bible, every one of those people have been made in the image of God. The way we think about that person, the attitudes that I have about them, the way I speak about them, the way I speak to them is an expression of how I view God, the God who created them, and who created me. By honoring that person and by honoring each other, we are honoring God. This is reflected in how Jesus responded to the question when he was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when I speak, I'm speaking to someone who is an image bearer. Even if they have different colored skin than me, or if I think they're not very smart, or if I don't think they're worth my time, even if they cut me off in traffic, even if they give me a ticket when I don't believe I deserve one, even if their dog poops on my grass, should I go on? The opposite is true. When I harbor anger or attack another, I am attacking one of the created beings, an image bearer. And in in essence, I'm attacking God. Jesus, you've put the bar way, way up high. You've told us that following you involves our inner attitudes, thoughts, and motives, not just our outward actions, but in particular, you've told us that our inner attitudes are what matter. And in this case, we're talking about anger. Well, 
What do you want me to do about it, Jesus? I'll accept the fact that you've set this high bar, but what do you want me to do? Well, quickly in this passage, Jesus gives two quick examples of practical expressions of what he wants us to do. The first one is found in verse 23, I believe it is. So, it says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Those of you who were here two weeks ago might have remembered Mark Birch saying this phrase. If you know, you go. I found that very helpful. Because I have a natural tendency as a person who has a great sense of justice, it's well-developed, to think if somebody offends me, they should come to me first. The passage that that we're talking about gives the other situation where someone has been offended by something I did. Well, that makes sense. If I've offended them, yes, I should go. But what Jesus is really saying here is the other is also true. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, in other words, I'm the one who's been offended, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Either way, go. Jesus, again, that bar seems way too high. What's Jesus really pointing out here? He's pointing out that what he values, folks, is reconciliation and unity. He values worship. Just imagine if, God, if Jesus were standing here today and he, he knew that there was friction between me and somebody and I'm up here like leading worship or preaching and he goes, wait a minute, I want you to stop what you're doing, leave your sermon right here and I want you to go and make that right. Uh, Jesus, we've got a lot of people standing here waiting. Or what about during communion today? I'm meeting with Jesus Stop, wait, go. Okay? That's how much Jesus is saying, I value reconciliation. Why should I? Why should I make it right? When we love each other and keep short accounts with each other, when we humble ourselves, when we trade our anger for forgiveness and go out of our way to make things right, we are doing what God has already done for us. We are a reconciled people. What does that mean? We were at odds with God. God took the first step. He took all the steps, in fact, to us. And he said, I will reconcile you to me. I'll do all the work. Just receive the gift. And so as a reconciled people, God calls us to be a reconciling people. That's hard. But you know what? I don't know about you, but when it happens, it is incredibly freeing. There's been so many times, my kids will tell you, my wife will tell you, where I've had to go to them and say, yeah, dad blew it again. Why are you laughing? 
But it's like, like the other day, I went out and I, I, I had completely gone off on my son Josiah. Completely. And he didn't deserve it. I completely went, didn't listen to what he was saying. Didn't, he was talking about some stuff. And I just went, no, and I just made this assumption and this assumption and this assumption. And then I drove away and I felt like garbage. It was so nice to come home. And say, did it again. Forgive me. What I said was wrong. It wasn't, you don't need to justify it. I just blew it. That's freeing, reconciliation, and then to be able to talk it out afterwards. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do it again, and it doesn't mean that he's not going to offend me sometimes. It doesn't mean it won't ever happen again, but what it means is we're free. We're free. We are a forgiven people, and our getting things right, dealing with conflict, can actually be an act of worship. Because in doing those things, we are responding to the goodness that we have been given by giving to others. That, folks, is worship. It's a response to what God has done for us. That is why we reconcile. That is why we go. So what if the person I go to refuses to meet with me? Or what if they don't admit what they've done? Well, Romans 12, 18, a little aside here, says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So you ask yourself the question. You go and it doesn't go very well. Have I admitted and owned up to 100% of whatever part I played in this conflict? Okay, yeah. Have I asked for forgiveness? Yes. Have I given up my need for justice? For, for, for my need for them to get what they deserve. And have I given up my need even for them to admit that they've done anything wrong? If we're following Jesus' example, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had made our repentance, before we had known even of our sinfulness. Failure to forgive folks, is actually a trap. Now, I want to know if there's anybody here that likes M&M's. Okay, I need somebody that has a hand that would fit into here. Is there any monkeys in the group? That young man right there. Okay. Now, I am forgetting your name, Eli, that's right. Okay, Eli, give me your best monkey impersonation. <laughs> this is called a monkey trap, folks. That was good, by the way. It was a dumbfounded monkey. A monkey trap. I watched this on YouTube the other day. What they do is they take a hole, dig a hole in an anthill, and the baboon watches the whole time, and then the baboon watches and says, oh, there's something in there, because the, the hunter put something in there, like this. And so what the monkey does is he comes after the person leaves, he comes running over and he tries to reach his hand in. As soon as he puts his hand on, he's got the treasure. Now, I want you to try and get this out without tipping it any other direction than straight up. 
Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not going to bite you, I promise. I'm not going to bite you, I promise. Okay, pull. See, now he's caught. Because as long as he's hanging on to what he thinks he deserves, which is the M&M's, that's why he came up here, right? He's not getting free. Because he deserves these M&M's. He took a risk. Am I hurting your arm? Sorry. <laughs> he deserves these. Okay, now let go. But if he lets go, he's free. In the monkey's case, what happens is that's how the monkey gets caught because the monkey is so fixated on hanging on that they will not let go no matter what you do to it. And the monkey is captured. Thank you. When I'm trapped on my need for justice, I'm the one who needs freedom. I remember my pastor years ago, I was in a situation with a dating relationship that I made a huge mess of personally, but it cost me about a significant sum of money because I had made some dumb decisions in the process. And so I was talking to my pastor about how to make this all right, and I was feeling frustrated because my money was, should have been mine. And he looked at me and he said, Lyndon, you need to learn to say I forgive you, period, not I forgive you, but. I forgive you. I give you, I let go of my right to get my money back. I let go of the right to, have, to be right. I let go for the, of the right for you to even receive justice. Because folks, what we get with Jesus, it's not justice, it's mercy and grace. As long as I'm not willing to let go of my need for justice, I'm trapped. And so I remembered back to the only sermon illustration I remember in five years of Bible college. I went to Bible college for five years and this is the only one I can remember. It goes like this. This is a symbol of anger. Do this with me, please. Okay? When you put your fist up like this, you're ready to pop somebody, right? This is what this person said. I can't even remember that guy's name. It's a five-finger prayer. Holy, do this with me, Spirit, help me now. As soon as I do that, is a symbol of releasing to God. Let's do that together. Holy Spirit, help me now. Folks, that is the only way we will be able to forgive. That is the only way. Because to forgive is not a natural human thing. We need God's Holy Spirit living in us with a mindset that says, I am a forgiven person. And because I'm a forgiven person, I give forgiveness and grace and watch my tongue and watch my attitudes. Not because I'm performing for God, so somehow he'll like me, but because he likes me and now I'm doing this as an act of worship. Can you say amen to that? And that's free. Take this home. Look in the mirror. God, that person bugs me. <sighs> Holy Spirit, help 
me now. You know what? I had to do that with my lawnmower yesterday. Uh, it takes humility and surrender. It takes humbling, remembering that we've been forgiven. We have to understand that what Jesus has done is a scandalous gift of mercy and grace. And you know what? When we do that, our hands are free and we are no longer in bondage. We start on a journey of freedom. And isn't that what we want? Don't you want to be free from bitterness and anger and frustration? Holy Spirit, help us now. Second illustration Jesus gives, I'm going to really jump over quickly because I am blowing way over time here. Tim knew this when I started. Second part of the scripture says in Matthew 25, 25, 26, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge be to the guard and and you're put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. In short, folks, I just want to give you the nugget here. Some of us believe that the system is supposed to be used to our advantage. So if we kind of play the system, we, we go, all right, um, someone's taking you to court. If I work the system long enough, maybe I'll get a lesser sentence. If I work the system longer, I won't have to pay as much. What Jesus is calling us to is pay quickly and painful. Make it right. It's a high standard. It's hard. And I don't know each of our own circumstances. I just know that Jesus is calling us to be people of integrity. Why does that matter? Because we have a reputation to uphold. Well, that seems kind of backwards. Whose reputation are we upholding? Go back just a slight step to two sermons ago. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But, a, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's God's reputation that's on the line here. So I just want to bring that to your attention. It's not about my reputation, it's about God's. That's hard, I know. Holy Spirit, help me now. Who are we? We are the light of the world, Jesus said. What is our greatest priority? The glory of God. Our good works, even in how we handle legal matters, business dealings, debt, etc., broken relationships, are an opportunity for people to watch us and to bring glory to God our Father. But what about, okay, so what about righteous anger? Really quickly, righteous anger. Ephesians 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Based on that, it would be evident to me that Paul, who wrote that, thinks that it's okay. There is righteous anger. There's good anger. There's anger that be angry and do not sin. With Jesus, because I want to go to Jesus now just as a final few examples. With Jesus, there is an example for sure that we all have probably heard if we've read the first parts of, of the Gospels. And if we haven't, here's a wonderful kind of example. Jesus walks in. He sees that the temple is being used for some some, uh, inappropriate things being sold. People are making money off of worshipers. And he walks in and he clears the tables out, kicks them over, boots them over, got a whip. And he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's a whole nother sermon, but the point is, is there is such a thing as righteous anger. But what I marvel about as I read through Scripture is how Jesus responded to anger-inducing situations, especially those in the last week of his life. Matthew 26. Here's an example. So one of his closest, closest disciples, Judas, one of his 12, Jesus is in the garden and he's really struggling knowing that he's going to be going to the cross. He's been praying hard. And then Judas, one of the people he should be trusting, betrays him. But he doesn't just betray him, betray him by saying, hey, there he is. He walks up to Jesus and betrays him with a symbol of affection. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an act. And when I see people being phony like that and it's an act, I would have at least expected to Jesus to, for him to at least cuff him. Like, how dare you? What does Jesus say? Friend, do what you came to do. Peter can't stand it. So what does Peter do? What I would have done. Except that I used a paintball gun. Because I'd have missed. Peter draws his sword and lops off the ear of the high priest's servant. Better. Out of boy, Peter. That's what I would have done. Righteous anger on display. What does Jesus say? Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I, ca I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, that's. Jesus, okay, well then if you can do that, well, let's get on with it. Like, you're being treated pretty badly here. But what does Jesus say? All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus was focused on what was important. And then all of his disciples left and fled, it says. And even that, to me, would be worthy of anger. I mean, Come on, guys, at my, le at my, my, my least, my, my most vulnerable moment, you leave. But Jesus' perspective was different. Remember what he told his followers about that, that let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give your glory to your Father who is in heaven. In heaven. Given every anger-inducing injustice that was done to Jesus, his perspective was on not the injustice, but on fulfilling the work his Father sent him to do. I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. What really mattered to him was the glory of his Father. And so in the face of incredible unjust pain, shameful, undeserved mockery, Jesus' response is, watch this. First of all, he's crucified with criminals. Come on. They're gambling over his clothes. He's an important guy. Come on, maybe we can get some, sell his garments for some cash on eBay. He saved others. Come on. You saved others. Let him save, your, save yourself. For if he is the Christ, if he's the chosen one, he can do this. Hey, Jesus, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Oh, yeah, what did Jesus say? Does anybody know? I'm coming off the cross and I'm getting you. Father, how does he do this? Father, forgive them so they know not what they do. 
He was so focused on fulfilling the, father, the work his father sent him to do that he was willing to endure brutality. It was a work given to him by his father because he knew the bar of righteousness was set too high for us. He's saying, I know the bar is too high. You can't jump over rod. So I'll take care of it for you. And I'll endure all of this for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, which Jesus could have easily done. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, work, a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what do we do in response? Well, first of all, if you haven't today, if you haven't received the gift that allows you to be carried over the bar by Jesus, I encourage you. The gift is offered to you. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life. But then the second thing, if you, if, if, and if you want to, by the way, if you want to talk to somebody about that, we'd love to just grab whoever's close by that you know knows Jesus and just ask. You can come talk to one of us as staff or elders or it doesn't have to be us. But receive it. But the second part, how do we respond in the face of conflict, anger, personal injustice, all the stuff that we go through every day, we have to ask the Lord to help us. Holy Spirit, help me now. To embrace our new identity. Jesus, in verses just previous, said that we are the light of the world. That's part of our new identity. Dearly loved children of God. Holy in his sight. Embrace that identity. And then live by the power of his Holy Spirit a surrendered life focused on the purpose that God brought us here for as a response, living every day as an act of worship. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.